All right, we are back with another episode of 90s Noise. I'm April, born 1991. And I'm Ashley, born 1988. So we just want to thank everyone for listening to our episode. And we want to remind everyone that we do have a Patreon account that you can find a link to either in our show notes for each episode, or you can find a the link to it on our Instagram, which is 90s Noise. And we have a great deal for $3 a month. You have access to all of our videos of all of our episodes, all of the exclusive interviews that we do with all of our guests. You also will have access to a couple of fun bonus episodes each month, um, either related to a past episode or just something random that we decided to do. So we would love it if you would go on and support us and check that out. Um, Also remember to follow us on Instagram and of course, leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast, whatever platform that is, leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. We really do appreciate all of your support and we will definitely shout out any reviews that we get. Don't be afraid. Send us some messages on Instagram. We love talking to people and hearing feedback and yeah, we would love to hear from you. All right, we are back on 90s Noise, and today we have a very special guest. He is, I can't even begin to give an intro because there's so much that this gentleman has done. We've got Nick Egan here, and he is a music video director, a graphic designer, a painter. The list goes on and on for your art-based resume. And it's incredible. Thank you. We we are so so excited to have you with us this uh, this morning for you out in LA. It's just early afternoon for us here in Florida, so we would love to hear about your time working with different artists um, in the nineties sure. and just how you got started in the industry. Let's let's start with that. <laughs> Thank you, Emily. I, I appreciate it. It's always good to be um, recognised for the work you've done. Um, and I'm always happy when people ins- has inspired people. And so you want a brief history? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I was, um, without giving too many dates away, I was, I was one of the first uh, wave of punk rockers back in 1976. I was at art school. Uh, a small provincial art school outside of uh, London called Watford Art School. And that happened to coincide with the, well, let's just get it back just a little bit further than that. But back in 1976, in the beginning of or, or the early part of 76 or, or late 75, I went to see David Bowie play at Wembley. And um, Wembley Arena, which is, holds about 20,000 people, it's an indoor arena. And he was doing his Thin White Duke tour. And I remember going there and I went with my my stepsister, we had tickets, they had restricted view tickets, and we were right in the side of the show at the very back. He then told me to see David Bowie's if he came to the front of the stage. So, and then as we were leaving the show, we were almost run over by a fleet of limousines, and um, and it was David Bowie's, about five or six limousines went flying past, and I just remember at the time going, thinking to myself, oh, that's an interesting job. You know, what, what, what it, it was intrigued by the mystique of it all and and then probably about two weeks later I found myself 
a friend of mine said to me, there's this band called the Sex Pistols. We should go and check them out. And they're playing, at, well, first of all, they were playing at a club called Dingles and we got there and it was been cancelled. But then we ended up finding they were doing a residency at a club called the 100 Club in London on Oxford Street. And we went along to that and there was about 50 people in the in the room. And what took me, what, what the, 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 the comparison between the show at Bowie and then the Sex Pistols one was, was night and day because the band actually were in the audience and they just got up on stage and started to play. So it's the complete opposite of, of, the, of the David Bowie Wemby, which was very in an ivory tower, untouchable, unreachable, unattainable. Whereas the punk movement was all about everybody and, and everybody was kind of equal. Now I happened to be going to art school and there was a friend of mine who was at art school with me and sadly was killed in a, the very next year in a motorcycle accident called Mick North. And he said, oh, there's a, I'm really good friends. By this time, we've been going to the see the pistols every week at the 100 Club. And each week, you've got more people and more people and more people. And then um, Mick said to us, um, you should go, if you see the Clash, because by this time, we've seen the Clash as well, you should go up to Paul in the group and say hi. So, um we saw him, he was like, like I said, he was in the audience and I started talking to him and he said, oh, you should do one of our covers. And and it kind of, it just, I hate to say easy, but it was just, we were in the right place at the right time. I was still at art school, so I was still learning how to be a graphic artist. And uh, we um, were handed, uh, we used to go to, listen, while we were at art school, we used to go up to, Watford was just outside of London, we used to catch the train into London, which was about, 15 minute train ride into the center of London. And we used to go to the record labels and pretend we had a fanzine. And we would um, we would go around to the record labels and say, we've got a fanzine. We, we used our, our college student magazine as our, our pretend fanzine. Uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, basically we turned that fanzine, in, that, that, that student union um, magazine into our fanzine and we would get free records and one day we were up at a record label called Sire, and they had the Ramones and um, Talking Heads and, and various other groups. And they asked us if we would be interested in doing a T-shirt for the Ramones. And so, we, you know, bearing in mind we were still at art school at this time, we, we in our first year, I think, at art school. And we said, yeah, so we, we did these T-shirts. We, we did them really randomly in a, in a real hurry. And um, we didn't put much thought into it because we didn't really know what we were doing. We were sort of making up as we went along. And then we had to go to, it was a limited edition, 1,500 t-shirts, and we had to individually hand splash them with paint. So 1,500 shirts was a lot of shirts. And we only ended up doing about, about eight or 900, and I think we threw the rest of them in the River Thames. But anyway, since that, that t-shirt has become a very iconic t-shirt, and really expensive i think it's sold for an auction for about two thousand dollars if you have one of the original one of those ones not too long ago and that was our first ever piece of i suppose commercial art that we did and it kind of after that it kind of just spiraled we were very lucky then we did the clash we did um the white men in hamasa palais clash record label and then I got involved, and then we did a group called Dexter's Midnight Runners, where we did their first album cover, and this is still over at art school. And then we that spiraled off into a group called The Bureau, who I worked with, went on work with. Up until this point, there'd been a partnership between myself and Peter Barrett, who now lives in Australia, 
and we did it together. But then he he went off with the Dexes and I went off with the Bureau. But from the Bureau, I met Malcolm McLaren, who they happened to be on the same record label, a group called Bow Wow Wow were on the same record label. And so uh, my long standing journey and friendship with Malcolm McLaren uh, started there with Bow Wow Wow. And I was responsible for the the controversial parody of the Manet painting, um, Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe, which was Lunch on the Grass. And it was basically a naked woman sitting on, on, on the grass, having a picnic with a bunch of men. And it was very controversial at the time. And we did it with Annabella. And the funny thing about it was it, it's been touted as being you know, inappropriate and all these things, but we never saw it like that. We, we never saw it in any sexual context. It was always about the art and it was an artistic photograph that we parodied and it's now in the permanent collection of the National Gallery in London. Um, but that really sort of shot me to another level of, of recognition because I was responsible for that cover. And then Malcolm decided to go solo and his first record was, um, oh, and by this point, I had worked with Culture Club, a girl called Kate uh, Garner, who was in Hazy Fantasy, and I'd worked on various different single covers and everything. And then I decided I wanted to move to New York. And so I moved to New York in about 1983, no, 82, 83. And it coincided with Malcolm McLaren making an album called Duck Rock, which was at the very birth of hip hop. So this was when hip hop didn't even have a name. And and um, it was when people even in Manhattan had not even heard of this whole thing that was happening in the South Bronx. And so Malcolm, when he was making this record, was it was what another first was a world record. Nobody even had done world records at this point. And so Malcolm had been to various places around the world and recorded some music from Central America, some music from South Africa, and then this music that was evolving out of the Bronx called rap music. And he made a record called Buffalo Gals, which was a huge. It was it was the first hip-hop record or rap record to ever be played in Europe and become a hit that since then has been one of the most downloaded uh, uh, sampled records of, of all one of the most sampled records of all time uh, Eminem used it in his track where he, instead of saying two buffalo girls go around the outside he said two trailer trash girls go around the outside so it, it really was a big influence on many many other artists both black and white artists and um, my cover became famous because I it was the first time anyone had ever seen the artist Keith Haring who became hugely popular and uh, a graffiti artist called Dondi White and then we designed this thing called a duck rocker which in fact was a was a, a boom box that we customized it we customized and the reason we customized it because you know Malcolm is one of these people that was really brilliant at putting together two things that didn't seemingly work together. Now, for example, Buffalo Girls was a was a mixture of hip hop or, or or rap music, as we as it began to be called, and square dancing. Now, when he told that to people, people were going, "You crazy? They're so opposite each other. One is black music, and one's really white music." And he said, "No, if you listen to um, square dancing, they're calls. They're an instructor who will say, well, Take your partner by the hand and dosi do your partner, which is a, which is an instruction on how to dance. And he said, rap music was 
everybody in the house going, yeah. So they were both these. So he put these two things together that were just, I don't know if you know how familiar you are with the Duck Rock record. It's it's the, um, it's actually the 40th anniversary of it this year. And, and it really, and I'm doing a book about it, actually. I'm just about to start a book with Rizzoli about the cultural influence that that record had on the rest of the world. Because Malcolm was also part of the design team called World's End, which was within West, where the Malcolm McLaren designed all this very high end, yeah, we used to go to the Paris collections to do to launch his um his his uh, collection. And Vivian and Malcolm were very street based ideas mixed with historical, like had a they had a pirate collection, and then they had um, a Buffalo Girls collection, which was really expensive, high end couture, almost couture clothing mixed with street clothing. So that became a huge influence. So while I was in New York, I got to work with Bob Dylan and um, I did Bob Dylan's biograph record, which is a celebration of all his work. I did Iggy, I worked with Iggy Pop. I did blah, blah, blah with Iggy Pop. I did the psychedelic first, Midnight to Midnight. And while I was at that point, I also began, um, I met Michael Hutchins from NXS through a friend of mine. And then that, led me to going to Sydney in Australia to work on the, and do the kick cover for NXS. So, so what basically all my firsts have always been very high profile. My first album cover was Texas Minute Runners. My first single cover was The Clash. My first work I did in New York was Iggy Pop and Bob Dylan. And then I got to work with NXS who at that time were a popular band, but were as quite as international as they became. And I decided I took them from being a, an Australian band into becoming a um, an international successful band because Kit sold so many records. And so I, I I lived in Australia for a year, and then after I finished doing an excess two covers for them, Kick and X, I moved to decided to move to Los Angeles. And while I was in Los Angeles, having done the blah uh, the um, Iggy Pop cover uh, for blah blah blah. Someone said, well, why they needed a, a video for it? And and someone said, well, why don't we, because he, he wasn't available to go and shoot anything. It was just some live footage and whatever else needed to go into it. So someone recommended me to do it. So I reluctantly did a video because I didn't really believe in videos at that point. I, I believed in, and this was really at the beginning, very early part of MTV. I believed album covers were much more credible than, than videos. And I thought videos were... You could take an album cover out and look at it whenever you wanted and play a record whenever you wanted. Whereas a video, you had to wait for someone to play your favorite video. But when I did it, I got really got the bug for it. I, I really loved doing it. And and so, and it got heavy rotation on MTV. And then there was a, a period where I was doing album covers and music videos simultaneously. And that was a really hard to do that. I always thought that, yeah, you know, it was a natural progression from someone who designed the record cover to, um, somebody who did the video i thought it made sense to me that the two worked together so it took a little while before i started to get uh, anywhere and in fact i went back down to australia and did some videos in australia particularly for a girl called jenny morris who was one of the nxs backing vocalists at the time and then when i came back i got to work with wendy and lisa who had just left prince and they'd gone solo so and they were great because they completely trusted my vision and you know i hadn't got any experience virtually no experience and so i did wendy and lisa and then that led me to and i don't even can't even remember what the next video was it's so i've done so many of them but basically i did some some of these videos and then 
I got to work with Kylie Minogue because Kylie was going out with Michael from NXS. By this time, Michael and I had become really close friends. And Kylie asked me to do a video. And she said she had an idea. We had an idea together. But she basically said I could do whatever I want. So up until this point, my videos were just performance, bands performing on the stage. And it's kind of boring. And Kylie was the first person to say, you know, do so, let's do something fun and colourful and doesn't have to be... So we did, I did um, Step Back in Time for Kylie, which was, I think, I guess it was in the 90s, which turned out to be a big hit, but it it, it changed my, it changed people's perception on, on me because it was, wasn't, was you know, just rock and roll. I could do all kinds of music. And from Kylie, I did Belinda Carlisle. Uh, the, the, the two songs are difficult for Belinda, but Belinda was, a great person to work with and, and really one of the most photogenic people I've ever worked with. Um, I did also did, so I did a lot of these beauty things with, with women and then, but through Kylie Minogue, ironically, I got led to do Sonic Youth and then a Sonic Youth video and the Sonic Youth video led me to doing the, uh, a Soup Dragons video, which the Soup Dragons were nominated for Best Alternative Video in 1991, I believe it was, along with Nirvana, Red Hot Chili Peppers and um, the Pearl Jam, so it's pretty big uh, group I was category and didn't I didn't win it, but but um, I think Nirvana won it, and that was just smells like Team Spirit, so you, you can really get a sense of what the competition was, and and that's one of the reasons I actually enjoy making videos because the competition was I think it, 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 now it's very much homogenized into sort of nothing kind of everything looks a bit the same, but back then it was all different directors with different looks. And it was like Stefan Sidney and Sam Bear and Jake Scott and and Spike Jones and myself. And, and we all had a different visual look. And that then led to doing Duran Duran. I've just done Duran Duran's uh, wedding album, which I did the for, and they asked me to do the video. So I did the video for Ordinary World. And that shot me up into the into the super A list of directors. And then I continued to do, uh, you know, videos like with Oasis and In Excess, and um, I did a few for Duran Duran. And then sadly, in around the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, MTV took a different turn. And I don't know, you guys are probably old enough to remember when there was a time when you, anybody's house you would walk into, MTV was on. MTV was on 24 hours a day. And what it did, it, it brought music into everybody's homes in this country. So coming from England, where it's a small country and you know, the population is, is like a tenth of the population, we had a show called Top of the Pops, which was on every Thursday, and everybody in the country would watch that show. So everybody would be talking about who they'd seen on Top of the Pops on the Thursday. It was the same MTV. You had a sense of what the country liked. The country became like one as opposed to all these different little pockets and different areas. Everybody watched MTV. Everybody was into the music. So if you got an MTV, which I became one of the directors when they first put a name on, you knew who direct, you kind of knew who directed it. You knew what kind of videos you liked. And, and then it, it was the bands. It was almost like the directors became as important as the bands were because you sort of followed the director. And, and so it was what I call the glory days of making videos because, you know, you knew that if your video got on buzz clip or clip of the week or whatever it was, you knew that that was going to lead to other things. So that was really 
at its best and, and, and its peak. And suddenly MTV decided that their format was going to be reality TV. And so they started to focus on reality TV and then coinciding with the birth of the internet, it kind of like took the videos down and reality TV came along and we all know where that led to us with the Kardashians, mm. that terrible whole disgraceful <laughs> reality TV crap that's, that, that got on. So it kind of killed the industry bit and now now i think you've got what you have is you have like it is without going i don't obviously don't want to go into politics here but what you've got is the extremes you've got the super rich like taylor swift and and people like that and then you've got the you've got the really low budget and then you've got not much in between mm -hmm. so the area whereas in the 90s with mtv you had like the million selling and lower less selling sort of alternative groups and you had like the medium-sized groups and then you had the super groups like Michael Jackson and Madonna and U2. And then you had this middle thing where it would be Bon Jovi or Nirvana and whatever they went bigger. So you had this covering all kinds of aspects of music. Now music has gone off into pockets of independent alternative music, in, but it's all dissipated all over the place. And then you've got the big super, super like it's bands that spend a lot of money on their videos. So basically, there you go. That's it. That's my that's a quick narration on my my history. Um, obviously, I've done other things besides just music videos and and um and album covers. I still do the odd music video once in a while. I mean, I did a recent collection of videos with a guy called Merchant, who John Taylor co-written with, and he'd asked me to do. Um, I did a video with John. It was in the video, and that was great. I, I really liked doing that with him. He was a kid. He's only twenty five years old, and so. And he was very inspired by the eighties and nineties, and but there's no there was no no money in it, and mm -hmm. yes, now I do it for the love of doing them as opposed to the financial. Well, even when I did them, I didn't do it for the money. I just happened to get paid a lot of money back then. But it kind of the industry has gone so down the toilet that I think it's sad, really, that now you got well, you got YouTube, and YouTube is great, but um, it's not MTV, you know. No. It's not. I know what you think of that, but um. So that that's basically it. That's my story. And now I'm now I'm doing. I do the occasional video. I'm doing a book about the duck rock cover that I did um, with a photographer called Bob Groom. We put, we're just about to start to do that. I'm do, I have um, a series of I have a gallery in Glasgow. So it's my paintings. I got. Um, I'm just about to sign to a new gallery here in Los Angeles, and I've done some bigger format paintings. And what I'm doing for my new paintings is I'm. I'm repainting my album covers. So I'm actually painting them on a much bigger format. So uh, for example, I've just done the Bob Dylan biograph. So I've done it big, gigantic size and I'm calling them unfinished because the covers are finished. So there's no point in me doing an exact replica of the actual cover. So I don't, I do it with acrylics on canvas and I repaint the cover but I, I leave some things out, like I left a type out of the Bob Dylan one, and I left a blank side of the canvas, some of it blank. And I'm just about to finish doing the cult uh, Sonic Temple cover that I did. And then next, I'm probably going to do the um, Duran Duran, because there's been always been a request for me to reimagine my album covers in some way. And so it's, and a lot of people ask me about that, and I've taken my time. And now I've done it. They, they have a great, they do look, they have an impact to them. And, and by leaving them slightly unfinished, it makes them provocative because 
there is a finished cover, but this was like the cover if it hadn't been finished, you know, reimagined, if that makes sense to you. So yeah. uh, that's what I've been working on. And I've really been enjoying doing that. It's kind of strange painting something you did 20 years ago. So, yeah, so that's been good. And if I get a chance, I can send you the copies of what that looks like. Um, and then I've also been taking covers like, I took the duck rock cover and I reimagined it this time as a poster on a wall and the people graffitied on it and wrote on it, and stuck things on it. And and so that's what I've been doing. And and like I say, the next project I'm about to get into is to do this um, this book about duck rock. So there's a lot of in between all of that, but that's just basically, and I, if I told you everything, it would be here for like the next week. So <laughs> I don't think that people, I mean, yeah, in this, in this day people think, um, they say they do a lot, but I don't think, really think people are, are, are as diverse as what I've done. And I don't think people believe sometimes all the things that I've actually been involved with. And 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 I and I don't want to sound like I'm bragging about stuff. So I, play, I tend to play things down a little bit, you know, and not be too over the top. So I don't think people believe me in this day and age. But there you go. That's incredible. So kind of going off of both good chunk of both of those you're the you did a lot of album covers but you also did a lot of music videos what kind of was your process about going looking at you were given this album that you're to do the cover for as opposed to this song that you're doing a music video for did you how did you kind of approach those differently that's an interesting question actually well with the album covers back in those days i would go into like a band or a management would call me and say, we'd like to do the album cover. Um, would you like to come down to the studio and listen to what's going on? So I'll give you an example with an excess. Uh, so I went to, uh, uh, Michael said, I'll come down to, to Australia, to Sydney, when we, we finish off the album. And I went down to Australia, to Sydney. I stayed with Michael. And then I went to the studio to listen to him in the shit. And so what I do is I just, I basically just sit back and, and listen to what the music was going on, but also listen to them, what they're saying. And a lot of bands would have a like a pin board and they'd have tear sheets or, or things stuck up on the wall that like as they were going along, oh, here's a, here's a photograph from so-and-so, we like this, so they stick it up on the wall. And I would look at things like that. I'd listen to them talking. I'd listen to the, the, the producer. I'd make mental notes inside about the music. And so what, what the important thing back then was, was first thing you got from the album cover wasn't the music but an image the first thing you would see with this the important thing it was really important that the image you did for this record cover conveyed what the music was as strong as it could so so with it so for example with excess the first things they would you would see of kick would be a poster or or or, or like a picture of that with the in and the inside cover i did a a gatefold sleeve with it, and you've got a picture of Michael's hand pointing. So we would put things up like that. So people would, you have to sort of bring people into the, um, to the, to the sort of texture of the, of what the sound was like um, visually. And so that that's the way I would, I would interpret it was from being in the studio, obviously in discussion with the band. I would discuss with the band what I had an idea of, and I remember saying to the band, "Listen, you're not a, you're not a, an Australian band. You're not a Sydney band." you're an international band. We have to get, we have to lose some of the Australian thing and make you an international band because the trouble at the moment, everyone's perceiving you as being, oh, an Aussie band. I didn't want them to be like that. I wanted them to be international. So I, I wanted to go with sort of contemporary fashion look and keep it stark and 
focus a little bit on Michael because Michael, I always knew that Michael was one of the greatest rock stars ever. But even then, he was at the pinnacle of his career, but also still making it look like a band. It was still a band without it being just just the focus on Michael. So that's the way I go with that. And it was a longer, it was a much longer process of of, of thinking with an album cover because you have to take into consideration what the whole points of purchase be, being uh, would be, and that points of purchase being like the posters, the other single covers. So there's a much greater creative. Uh, energy needs to be put into when you do an album cover because it's it leads into all other things including into into video so and Richard Lowenstein took that idea for the Need You Tonight video completely from the album cover so that is a that's a, a really big huge burden to take on you because it has to have it has to have longevity it has to sort of click with people immediately because you can ruin or make a band from the images that come from a, from the album cover. If you do the wrong imagery, it can ruin a bands. You know, and I've done a couple of bad covers that have, have sort of not destroyed a, a record because the record has to be good. Yeah, that ha hasn't worked. So I've made a couple of mistakes, but but the big successes have been big successes because I've in, embedded myself into the studio and been around the band and been part of the band and felt what they were feeling. Um, with music videos, I always go, I listen to the music and, and, and I listen to it like repeatedly until I feel something, something within it that, that, that says something to me. Like, like, yeah, it could be anything, it could be abstract, it could be like, uh, yeah, a spaceship or, or a desert or something will come into my, into my head when I'm thinking about it. And then I kind of make notes. To, to this stream of consciousness or something will be very obvious. I'm trying to think of it with, with Ordinary World, for example, I thought I want to make it, obviously it's like an ordinary world, but really it's not an ordinary world. It's an extraordinary world. And I want it to go, but in an ordinary world, there's good and bad things happen. So on the day that somebody's getting married, there's also somebody in living in a war zone that's getting bombed by somebody. So, so I wanted to try and bring that into, into that juxtaposition of that. So what I do is I let the music take, take me over. And then I go back and then the last thing I do is look at the words. And, and, then, and, and then within the words that I look at, look at I, I see how they work with what I've been thinking. And then I piece together a, 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 an overall concept from that. So that's how I, really base most of my you know, music videos. Sometimes I just look at the title of the song and I go, oh, this is, this is, this is a great, like, I, I like um, I'll go on. I did a video for this, I was telling you about this guy called Merchant and um, John Taylor wrote and co-produced and he had a song called I Don't Feel Like Dancing. And it's about basically, he's not, he, he, he's, his girl's left him and now he doesn't feel like dancing. So I decided to do the complete opposite. So what I did, I took all um, samples off the internet of all dancing, every, every dance, contemporary dancing, Saturday Night Fever, Square, every kind of dance you could think of, um, um, Northern Soul in England, and I made a collage of all this dancing, Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, and, and made it, because it's an uplifting sounding song, even though somebody's saying, I don't feel like dancing, I made it all about dancing. So Sometimes I do the complete opposite of what the title says, just to sort of play with it. Um, and that was, I did that video for nothing. I just, I just got an inspiration on it one day and I put it together really quickly. 
and it's all library footage that I've put together of dancing and, and I've layered it. And, and so sometimes those ideas are, that they, they come to you in, a, in, a, in the title without even listening to the music. So I can't say there's any one specific thing I, I go for in terms of conceptual, or not one specific route that I go down, but more likely, um, but I do have an approach, like like I said, listen with videos, listen to the song over and over and over again. If the title doesn't grab you in some way, like you go abstract or, or, or literal on the title, it, that stays in my mind. I don't listen to the words. I try and avoid not being influenced by the words in the beginning. I just want to see what the music does to me inside. Does it make me feel happy? Does it make me feel ominous? Does it make me feel anxious? Does it make me feel fear? Does it make me feel angry or whatever that you you, you you obviously girls know that because you listen to music you music is the one thing of the arts that gets you in the heart and 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 really it it, it makes you feel in a good mood or in a bad mood and 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 so listening to music is that stirs up the emotion more than any other of the other art forms and so that's why i try not to I try to let the, the music dictate to me what the kind of feeling of the, of the song is going to be or the, the video is going to be, and then take it each step after that. There you go. <laughs> That's all. Awesome. I love it. I was going to say that definitely translates very well in your music videos with you saying that about how you're listening to the music. I, that really does make a lot of sense. And I, and I can see that in the works that you've done. But I do have a question about sort of making music videos in the 90s how was that process like with the technology being more limited and everything? Kind of how did you edit those and how did you make that final product come to be? That's an interesting question because absolutely technology has changed it to the point where now I edit and shoot and edit and do it all myself because you've got this technology that you can mess around with. Like, like for, for, So when I was shooting videos in the beginning of the 90s, end of the 80s, it was very much you shot it on film and then you would have a certain amount of film. So it wasn't this endless supply. So you'd have a certain cans of film, either 16 millimeter or 35 millimeter, and you'd shoot it. And then you'd have to get it transferred onto videotape um, and then transferred with a time code onto a three quarter inch editing. So the three quarter inch was about that thick. Yeah, as a tape that thick. And then you would, um, an editor would have a time code on it. So an editor would like, like take the, all the dailies would be on these these um, three quarter inch or umatic tapes, and the editor would get that assembly done, and then take bits from that and edit it by by the number by coinciding the numbers with each other. So it's a really laborious. It was a lot of press, click, rewind, press, click, rewind, press, click, and it would make a noise, you know, when it would spin back, and it was it was a clunky, really, and then. When you edit it together, it looked like shit because it was a two generations of, of tape together with a time code on it. So you'd have to explain to the label, you know, that it's not going to look like this. It's going to look a lot better than this does. That Don't worry about it. It's a much better quality. And, and they would never get it. They'd always think, oh, look, it looks terrible. But I, and I had a very keen sense of editing, but I, I just knew at the time it was something I didn't want to do. But I knew what was a... What made a good edit and a good pace on an, on, on an edit, which is why in the end, when when by now when you've got Adobe um, Prime, you've got 
it's easy to do it's literally you can do it on your keyboard and so that's that that's the way you go through it then you would have to present to the label a rough cut what's called a rough cut with all the time code on it and get the approval to do the online version of it which was taken from the master one inch tape as opposed to half inch or three quarters of an inch it was and then the one inch online and that was the clean untouched hidden time code that you would put and, and lay it down as a finished online and that would be the final thing you present. So it went through, it went through, like, it's a good question, the technology thing. It went through, I saw throughout my music video career how things changed from even special effects and, and things that you couldn't do back in 1987 that were became easy to do by, by the time we got into the new millennium. So, so um, it was a really a very, very fast transition from one to the next. And you know it all looks uh, it all looks so much easier, and it is easier. It's a lot easier than it used to be. I've got to say. So, you know, I think people have a people don't really re realize how just how cumbersome and hard it was to to even put an edit together on the video compared to now. You know, absolutely. So, kind of going about, um, I know we were talking a little bit before we started recording. You were talking about your how close you are with Duran Duran and you have been. Um, and so you've worked with them numerous times throughout both your career and theirs. How did going about the concepts for their music videos differ as they grew and you grew as both artists? Well, that's, a, that's a also interesting. They um, sometimes like I, I, the example I'll give you the, the last big video I did for them was pressure off and that was they they wanted to use the photography of a, a photographer oh, I can't remember his name it was, it was a photographer from the 1940s and 1950s who had a series of um photographs called jump and it was he took pictures of Marilyn Monroe jumping and and all different people and because he he said that everybody when they jump is equal so you jump. so they, they wanted to sort of bring those to life and I so Nick Rose had a specific idea about it. He wanted to do that thing. And I said, well, why don't we just do it with a really super slow motion? And and so you got and make it more contemporary and have it like. So that was a question of, of Nick had an initial idea and I took that idea and I turned it into something else. Sometimes they have an idea, you know. I'm trying to think specifically of one where they've got an idea. They, usually what happens is they have the seeds of an idea. Sometimes they have a specific idea, like like with pressure off. Nick really wanted to get this idea of people jumping, and so I took it and made it a thousand frames a second. So they're jumping, it's moving, but it's really really slow. And that was that that actually out of all my Duran Duran videos is my favorite video I've done. And that was I don't know five or six years ago I did that video, but um, that I liked with the others with Ordinary World. Pretty much it was my idea from the start to finish on that one because i think they've been around looking and talking to various people about doing the video so that came but there's always there's, there's always a discussion with duran duran you don't just go and do it the, the, the one that i the one that i did was all you need is now that video was completely all my idea and what i said to them is that what i'm going to do is a video that doesn't have an idea let's just i show up with a camera I, I go to each one of you, what you're doing, to, to your house, and I shoot a little bit of stuff, a little insert, 
of and that, I love that video too actually and and I said but also let's do a performance because we don't say a raw, let's do a raw band performance like a rehearsal performance and we did it in black and white and they're, they're in there they're in a small area they they came up with the idea of putting the silver um, paper up on the or silver foil up on the walls around it and so what what it is we have a very interesting balance between the two of us between if I, they have an idea I will interpret it and if I have an idea they will interpret it their way do you see what I'm saying yeah. so it, it, it's, it's always been a great collaboration and it's always I've always bailed them out because the videos I do always tend to coincide with just as they're like especially Ordinary World where they were almost like finished at this point and Ordinary World was a beautiful and brilliant song but also the video got MTV loved it so much it re it reinstated them as, as who they are and I've so I've done that and I did that happen with Pressure Off they were just coming down and I got them and we did Pressure Off and we had Janelle Monet in it and Noel Rogers and and the concept of jumping was perfect for that video we made it look very fashion so like I said it's more of a collaborative thing you know like the other group the group I've done most videos for funny enough is Oasis I've done more videos for them than I've done for Duran Duran and that usually is all me you know and I run the ideas by them but it's usually all me and you know they have their criticism and um their comments every band has something to say uh, Although I know always slags off every video that's ever done for him, but I think that's part of his image. But yeah, so and videos, so, but then you forget that in between and you talk about the band, but there's always a record label and they have to put their ideas in. So that's the other thing that's always people forget. The record label like to be involved with the concept as well. You know, they have to put their, their um, two cents worth in. And that can be difficult because I'm the kind of conduit between the two, like the record label trying to use me to get their ideas in through me, and I've got to try and interpret that into the band if I think it's so. So it can get very, very messy at times, you know, trying to get everybody's idea on paper. And that, that I've had a few videos where I've tried to be like that, and it they, it just never works. It never ever works. It never works when you've got too many people. You've got to you've got to prioritize what you think the good idea is. And will that be from the label or will that be from the band or will it be from yourself? You've got to prioritise what is the good, what you think is the good idea, instinctively the good idea, and you have to follow it as much as you can while staying open about interpreting certain ideas within that. But you've got to, but if you if you're trying to do it by committee, it never works. And I've done a few videos like that. And and I go, well, maybe this one this time it'll work, and it never works, you know. So so that's the as I did a video recently with an artist and and there were so many people involved with it, and I thought, well, okay, let's 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 try and let's try and make it work with the yeah the urban department, the 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 marketing department, the 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 manager, the 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 head of the label, the and it just it ends up being a complete mess. And and so I've I've really have learnt my lesson on on that. But you, it's a, it's a tricky situation because when you get a job given to you you've got to be respectful of the people that are paying you for it so you've got to kind of be respectful to the label because they're the ones that are paying you but you've got to be able to respectful but you've also got to be able to say say yes in order to say no if that makes sense so in other words if they come up with a uh, if they come up with like a really insignificant idea 
that isn't in effect you say yes to that one in order to say no to the big one so so if you say no 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 to everything then you're going to have a difficult journey but if you say yes to a couple of things you say okay i can put this in like okay we think he shouldn't be wearing a black shirt we think he should be wearing a blue shirt then you go okay yes to that but you know we don't think that we don't like the sort of concept of the uh, of what's the narrative is running through it. You say no to that, you know. So, but so that way they think that they, they get the impression that you're collaborative, even though you're not really being collaborative. You're just, you're just knowing the right places to say yes and the right place to say no. It's, it is a very political game, and it is a very tough thing for a director because you don't because then again, I forgot you've got the management who like to have their say in it and. I always ultimately go for what the band wants above anybody else. So if the band, because it's their video and they've got to live with it. So if it comes to anything, if it comes to acquiescing over anything, it will be towards the band. And again, it's like if it, the band have a great idea, you'll usually go, the band got this idea, but the record label hate it. And you've got to somehow politically keep that okay with both parties so you can say to the label well yeah i get why you might not like it but if we do it this way then it'll be okay and that placates them while also keeping the artist happy but and then what i'll do is sometimes i'll just i'll say yes and then ignore the label and hopefully it'll get through but always have the contingency that i might have to put it back in at some point so it is a it is really is a, a lot of human psychology and and a lot of um messing around with um different political aspects of, of what you do is now is there anyone that you would love to work with either um through a music video or artwork dead or alive that you just would love to have the opportunity to work with that's a good question oh well it'd have to be david bowie you know um david Bowie. if you're english and you're around my age and you sort of like grew up in the 70s and the 80s and Duran Duran the same. It's like we worship David Bowie in England. I mean, you know, he 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 changed everything for, for us because of he didn't play. He was nonconformist. He played that that androgynous thing between sexuality, which nobody had really done up until that point. He he just his his songs were everything from rock and roll, anthemic to beautiful beautiful poetry his image changes were great so yeah it would be david bowie and, and i never got the chance to even come close to working with him i did work with rod stewart though you know i did a video for rod stewart yeah i was actually gonna ask about that so <laughs> one of the worst i've ever worked with and and i see the reason why because i i was a big rod stewart fan in fact <laughs> i saw I like the faces and then I like Rod Stewart. And I saw when I was very young, I saw Rod Stewart and Elton John perform at Watford Football Club, which is close to where I live. And I, I you know, I got to like Elton John as a result. I thought Elton John was great. And so I've always thought, Robert, when I worked with him, he was a prima donna and he just was like, he was, there was a point where, where his assistant, her name was, her name was Annie, and she was be there and she'd be telling me, with Rod Stewart standing right next to her. Well, Rod says thinks this, and Rod thinks that, and Rod and I said, well, if Rod thinks this and Rod thinks that, why doesn't he tell me himself? He was standing right there. He was, and I was so disappointed because he was one. Of, that's why they say you should never meet your heroes because mm. 
they 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 can and so Russ Stewart, I just thought was the biggest pain in the neck, and and I, and I would never want to work with him again after that. So, so that's a disappointment. But yeah, so that so it's like a question. Yeah, undoubtedly David Bowie would have been great. David Bowie would have been a great one. Absolutely, mm-hmm. I would love to have seen what you would have done for any of his stuff. That would have been oh yeah. man. Going going through, I I love that you have a website honestly oh my gosh (laughs) that was it was just so mind-boggling like going through and seeing all of your work it was so nice to see it all in one place Mm -hmm. it's very well done yes absolutely impeccable yeah, thank you. That's really nice of you to say. So people that do websites are not as important as they used to be, are they really? No. I I I miss that, like being mm-hmm. able to go to a website and have all the information you're looking for in one place. And yeah. I I love getting to see the different artwork you've done. It was nice to have all of your archive of music videos there too, instead right. of having to go onto YouTube, type every single one in name by name to for us to get it back fresh in our memory. It was nice to just. Once I don't think I've in the archive, I don't think I've even got all of the videos. I, I, I no, yeah, I just I guess I chose the ones that I thought were my favorite and that I'm most proud of and represents me the most. It's quite a few, there's quite yeah. a few that as well. Oh, that's really sweet. I'm glad you like that. That's that's good because as I say, I've done so much, it's almost it overwhelms me the amount of stuff I've done. You know that I can quite honestly leave this world and say that I put my mark on it, you know, and I've inspired people and generations, and I still do because you know one of the things I get invited to, I get invited to speak at certain things. Like I spoke at, a, uh, I went to New Zealand and spoke at a um, conference down there called the um, Incredible Edge, and I went to Brighton and spoke at the film school. I just did a thing with Nike up at Nike on the inspirational. Friday speakers thing, so I get I get to I get to understand my place in history, cultural cultural history at least, um, and so that's something it's nice to, to know in your lifetime because a lot of people don't get to experience that in their lifetime. A lot of people from the past, in particular, they they don't become well known until they're already gone. You know, so so from that respect, it's good to to to, to understand what your worth was. Whether it's worth less or worthful, worth worthful is that word? Um, it is it, good to, to understand that in your lifetime. I've realised at times, you know, that it's only pop pop culture. It's not changing the world, but but music does have the ability to change the world, you know. And and and, and I'm sort of disappointing. I am. I do have a political agenda sometimes, and I do in my my t-shirt stuff. But I'm kind of disappointed there are no bands like The Clash or U2 that, that do that talk about the shit, the bad shit that goes on in the world and tries to rally people around. You know, we could have done with some of that over the last few years, really, just a rally, rallying cry for 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 people who who believe in a certain thing to stick together. So that's a bit disappointing, I think, with with the with the this last couple of generations. I did notice in. The Bon Jovi's Dry Country kind of had oh, a little bit of yeah, a little bit. Of, I've I've got to tell you the I I didn't graduate or anything, but I did go to film school for a couple of semesters because I was looking at 
going into the industry, growing up in the Midwest, that just wasn't a very plausible uh, avenue. <laughs> where, you, where in the Midwest? Uh, Kansas. Oh, right. So my, my wife's in the Midwest. She went to the University of Missouri. Really? Yeah. Okay. She went with Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt and her were friends. That she went with. Yeah. The yeah. So yeah, I get that. I understand that. It's like it's not. It's not like you're living in London, New York, or Los Angeles. But you're in Trent, where it's part of the. It's like part of the. It's the industry in there as well. London, not so much as LA. LA is a complete industry town. But yeah, so you were saying about Dry County. Yeah, the the film, the cinematography and the composition used mm -hmm. in that video was just incredible to me. And what was your process on finding those locations and those people in the black and white portions? Like Bon Jovi was the was had the fire around them, all that in the desert. But I, I was really awestruck by the black and white yeah. portions of that. Well, he had a very specific thing in that, that John Bon Jovi did. And John, you know, I did a couple of videos for them. And the first video I did for them was, um, I believe, that mm -hmm. was the first video they'd ever done that they never changed a single cut in it. But the second video was Dry County. It was a seven-minute song, so it was a long song to keep me going. He wanted to say something about, he wanted to, he wanted to say, the, the lyrics talked about, basically, I think Dry County was a metaphor for the the work and jobs and everything drying up and and um and so we, what we did with that we went to the desert out just outside of los angeles at lake mirage and and it's about mm, 80 miles outside of la and we shot in that flatbed there so we shot that on a, on a 35 millimeter camera in the, in the desert we didn't have very long to shoot it in because they, they they had to go off on a tour and, and so but we had while we were scouting, while we were looking for locations, we took a camera, the stills camera, and we used to use this technique with a bolt load camera. So it was a camera that took a 200 stills instead of like the regular 36 or something with a, with a motor drive. So you could motor, so you could animate those things. You could animate the frames. And we, you know, all those people, we found some people and we had some of those were just the crew, you know, where, where the, we, so we took pictures of the crew. And we went and drove all around the outskirts of Las Vegas. We went to Las Vegas because we we figured, well, Las Vegas is is the American dream personified, but it's usually blue collar working people that don't make a lot of money that go to Vegas and hope they're going to win. So, so so we went in it with that sort of that sort of um, approach, and um, and we got some great characters. But like I said, a lot of them were the crew. Because the crews always have interesting looks. So we did that. And then John Bon Jovi came up with the, with the headlines that said whatever it was that they, they said in there. And so that was, that, was a, that was a tough video because it was seven minutes long. It was really tough to keep it interesting. And I had an argument with John Bon Jovi over it because he, didn't, he said, we've only got four hours with him. And then he had to go. And I'm like, well, you know, you've got a seven-minute song. That's not going to, you know. So we we had to make it work with what we had. It's a very moving song, a very moving production of a video. And I loved it. I appreciate it. You say that about that song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was going to be my next question was, 
what has been the hardest thing you've worked on like music video wise has there been one that's been like really challenge like was really challenging for you to do well the one the, my, probably my most famous video of all is the Alanis Morissette you all know that is the one that that it gets on top 10 lists and all this kind of stuff. She was a complete and utter nightmare to, to work with. Not not, du not during the shoot of it. She was great. And in fact, she's the one person I can honestly say that when we were filming her, especially when you're filming her on the white, where she's wearing a white and she's in the desert and the assault, when she's running around, I've never seen the crew a crew stop what they were doing and look at her. They, these, these crews are used to working with every person you can imagine. Nothing faces them. And I looked around at one point, and I looked at them, and their jaws were dropping because her performance in it was unbelievable. But she was a pain in the neck because she she wanted to change everything in the end. And even in, she went into the media and started to say that she, if it hadn't been... So, so this is not so much a difficult thing. It was a, more of a post different difficult things she showed up with all these she told me she only had a couple of changes and when she showed up she had about 200 changes and and i fought her and fought and fought her because at that point i was a bigger star than she was on mtv and so I, I i was like i know what i'm talking about and she and i acquiesced in a couple of places but and then and then she went in the media and she started to say if it hadn't been for me this video and and so i i, I it left it i i it left me a bitter taste in my mouth. So it was an unpleasant experience because I've since seen her and she's since apologized for some, some of the stuff she said, but she was very bratty in that respect. And she was, she'd had a couple of hits in Canada, I believe, where she was like dressing in a mini skirt, like a bimbo. But, um, you know, she, she also when I was filming that, I was shooting on Super 8 and Super 8, it's not the most complimentary film stock you can use. And she had really bad skin at the time. And she also had a monobrow, a brow met. And she, so she was mugging the camera and she was like, she looked so masculine that I kept a distance from her. She wanted more close-ups and I said, no, they don't work. And so I just think the aftermath of, of filming it, I never wanted to do it in the first place, ironically. I didn't want to do the video. This is an interesting story on that whole video. So I was asked because I'd done a video with a guy called Guy Siri, who used to work at um, Madonna's record label. Um, I can't remember what the name of the label was. And so he wanted me to do this Alanis video. And the, but, but at the same time, my girlfriend at the time, who I had a child with, she, was, she got the job in the video commissioning department and I said, no, I didn't. I kept trying not to do it because I didn't want to work with her because it was an, it was an acrimonious breakup. So I didn't want to work with her. And then they, when they persuaded me and said we, she won't be involved with it, I still, for some reason, didn't want to do it. So what I did was I wrote, I wrote a treatment that was like a paragraph long, something to the words of, I will make go to I will go to Death Valley. I'll shoot a video. Blah blah blah. It will be great or something like that. Right. So. They said, "Great, go to go to Death Valley," which I love. Death Valley. I've been to Death Valley and got the some of the um, Bon Jovi stuff there. And I went to the um, I went to the Death Valley. And when I got there, no, nobody on the crew knew what I didn't know what I was going to do. And it's the funny time I showed up and I'm like, "What am I going to do now? I've got here. I just figured some places." And 
and I was kind of shit. What am I going to do? I don't know what to what, how to do. So my one of the girls, friends of mine, she was there to shoot stills. She carried a little. She had this little mini suitcase with her. And I don't know if you guys remember. There was a time when they used to get these stickers out of sticker machines of cats, like like a Siamese cat stickers. Anyway, so she was walking along with that, and I thought, and I thought of the song, and I thought about the words of the song. It's like I hate to bug you in the middle of dinner, which was ironic because obviously that's exactly what she wanted to do. So in my head, I got this this Terminator, the Terminator film of this girl who was so pissed that she would walk across the country. And and so, and that suitcase was the thing that nailed it for me. When I saw the suitcase, I said, let's give her the suitcase because she's got such an energy about this breakup that, that she gets to the point where she says, I hate to bug you in the middle of dinner, which is exactly what she did want to do. She did want to bug that person. And that was very much in alarm this is personality. So, that's when a light bulb went off in my head, and I thought, "That's the that's the concept. It's her. That's why you got these long shots of her keep walking. She's walking and walking and walking because she she's on the way to confront this guy, and she gets changed into another outfit. And I and I thought that that was the only time I've ever made it up on the spur of the moment, and and it ended up being one of my most successful ever videos in terms of so many things. It was um, it was in the top 10 most influential videos of all time because mm -hmm. of what women in rock. Because up until this point, women were more perceived as sexual objects rather than performers. And she was very much rocking out in that video. And it helped to um, inspire the Lilith Fair. And it, so, it, so that video has been so influential based off of me not wanting to do it and seeing a friend of mine carrying a suitcase was what got the concept across, which made the whole thing work. And I was, and I still, so that's a funny, that's an interesting question. It's a funny one, because in one respect I go, it was the most difficult, but also in the other respect I go, well, that was the time I just made it up as I went along and it was brilliant, you know, from that. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that, that certainly is one of, I mean, every video, you go through a nightmare on it very rarely goes easily you you've always got conflict somewhere along the line so so i can never say they're all like that but there is a point in every video where you think it's all going great and suddenly someone sticks a spanner in the works and and you've got to rethink things around and and it's i think it's that, that's happened on nearly every video i've ever done you know there, there's always been some conflict that you have to resolve and and yeah, being a director, a lot of it is about being a, a um, an, like a diplomat. Like you've got to be diplomatic. You've got to be like, you've got to try. And I explained this earlier. You know, you've got to try and and be able to say yes in order to say no. It's not worth having a fight. It's not worth having a fight over a pair of shoes in the video. It's not worth it. Mm -hmm. If somebody, yeah, if somebody wants to wear these shoes as opposed to these shoes. You, you just go with the one that everybody wants to go with because it's not worth it's not worth it's not worth fighting over that because there's going to be something that's much bigger that comes along like in the edit or or in in you know usually what happens is I'm pretty cool about like, like the alone thing I wanted her definitely to be changing in I definitely wanted in a white all white at one point and I definitely wanted in wearing a colourful like she had that sh blue shirt colourful shirt that we shot in the monks. The poppy seeds. The, the wardrobe was important to me on that. But normally, 
the wardrobe is important. I, I always say it has to be what the band feel. If they if they feel comfortable, like Duran Duran, you don't have to worry about it. Oasis, you didn't have to worry about it. They've got their look. I don't want to change a group's look. I want them to work with the look they've got. So rarely does that come up. But usually you find a lot of the conflict is is to do with the um, wardrobe, you know, what they're wearing. And, and so I've learned to be able to, to go along with the consensus on what a group is wearing unless i need a specific color to work in a video then 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 i get involved because i feel an artist is always going to be happier wearing what and i always insist even when we've got a stylist that they wear something that belongs to them so so that that whether it's a pair of shoes or a pair of socks or whatever it might be a bra it doesn't matter but just just because I want them to also feel that they're in their own skin and not in someone else's skin. So those are the arguments you tend to have the most about the wardrobe and also the way someone's lit. Is See, making sure that somebody looks good. My thing has always been, I want that person to look good. That's why with women, I was really respectful. Like with Belinda Carlisle, she's the most photogenic person I've ever met in my life. I mean, she just, when you turn the camera on to her, you, you can't ever go, Oh my God! She take, takes your breath away. She's so, so photogenic that you could light her anyway, and she'd still look great. Kylie Minogue was the same. She's got that, and and women are tough because you because women do are, are more not narcissistic but more concerned about their look, especially the older they get. They, they, and I and I appreciate that. It's it's we're living in a world where. It's acceptable for men to get older, but it's not acceptable for women to get older. And I think that's wrong. And I think that that although with Duran Duran, when I did the the one, oh, what's it called? All You Need Is Now, I told him, look, I think it's you're looking a little bit rough around the edges now because you're 50. If you try to hide that, you're going to look like you're hiding something. So I said, you've got, you got to just come to terms with your older a little bit. And and they agree, they they agree. So they look so I, I made it a bit more gritty with them for the first time. Um, they're the only group that are like girls when it comes to the way they look. You know, they really are. They they, they spend like hours on the outfit where their hair looks like. But yeah, so it's um, so there's always a conflict, and and I think that's just part of what you have to do. You have to be pre- prepared for conflict, but you also have to be flexible. You, you don't want to be a yes man and do yes to everything because I've tried that and it doesn't work. But but you always be prepared for. It's never going to be as quick as you think it is. It's always going to be longer. It's, you know, you you go. You might be working and rocking and rolling for like five straight hours, and it's all going around your head of time. And but something will always come up that will stop you in your tracks that you slow. So you got to be, be be prepared for the worst all the time. That's one of the things I think I have really mastered. Is is and a lot of this. A, a, a more recent generation don't get they can't deal with things that when they they are a mistake or go wrong they can't handle it don't know how to handle it whereas i always had a contingency so if anything went wrong like if we went out it started the rain i would say well let's make rain part Let, let's make rain part of the environment let's, let's or if you got to a place like i did with bon jovi where we i believe the one we shot in italy when we were looking for studios, I went into um, the foyer of this one studio and I thought, this is it. So we shot in the foyer of the place because I wanted them to be in a small area where they were on top of each other. I didn't want them to be in a big... And, and so we shot it in the, in, the, in the 
foyer of the stage that they wanted us to shoot on. So that ability to be able to think on your feet and go, okay, this because that's what life is. You you show up to somewhere, it's not quite what you want. And so you've got to be able to adapt to it. So I think with videos, I've had that ability to be able to go, okay, it's not the end of the world. We can um, we can make this work, and and it always does. You know, nine times out of ten. So that's been my philosophy, pretty much, for making videos. Not so much. Uh, uh, and here's the difference between the two, which which I which I enjoy. I love the teamwork of a film crew, of going on a set and seeing all these people you know socially because of being a, working on film with them. The grits. I, I love the familiarity. Of, the cameraman, the the the, the um, production designer, the, the the electrical department, the whatever the build. I love seeing those people that you work with a lot, and you you got this thing that you work together. And I always like in a film set to being like a band. You've got the, me, the singer, who's the director. You've got like the cameraman, who's the lead guitarist. You've got the production designer, who's the drummer, and you've got like the the grouping department or like the bass player, the keyboard player. So that's that's the way it is. So you know the focus is going to be on me primarily as a director. So you're the kind of like front man to the whole thing, but you've got this band behind you that are putting out a really, really great sound and make you perform great. So they, they bring your performance to a, a great level because there's such a good band in, behind you. And then on the other hand, I like the solitude of doing artwork, of, of it just being me and... I make the rules and I don't have to worry about anybody else. And it's all about me. So, so, it's, so I have a, a solo career and a group. So it's got a band. It's like Mick Jagger coming off of the Stones and doing a solo record. That's what it feels like a little bit. And and so I like both. I like the I like the, the solitude. I like the fact that when I'm working, doing the artwork, I'm doing it at my own pace, at my own time, at my own discretion. I'm not worrying about what other people think. I'm not worrying about what colours I should use. I'm not worrying. So, so they're the two parallels i draw so there you go i love that like and i, I love how you can how you, you compared it to being banned and then like going on a solo tour yeah. type thing that's that's incredible so i i did want to touch on this real quick because look go on your website i saw all this um you did a lot of merchandise also yeah, yeah, yeah. and so I was curious, do you have either a favorite album cover or piece of merchandise like the Ramones um, shirt that you're talking about that you have created? Well, I would have to say my favorite album cover is, well, two I would, two I would say would be the Malcolm McLaren Duck Rock cover. Just because that was different for me when I did that cover, because I had to interpret, I had to integrate Keith Haring, who was a graffiti artist, Dondi White, and then that machine I had built. The, the, and I think that, and that is in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and and it's and it still goes on today, the popularity. And then I suppose the NXS kit cover because of how what it did in terms of their career. So I'd have to say that yeah, those two would be my favorite album covers. Can I ask one more question? Okay. What has been your favorite place, like favorite location to shoot shoot at for a music video? Oh, that's an easy one. Death Valley. I've shot I've shot three. I shot Alanis Morissette in Death Valley. I shot I shot Oasis, Who Feels Love in Death Valley. I shot there's a little thing on the commercial side that I shot called Pahrump, which I which I went out and 
that was a great I, I, I signed to a production company and they wanted me to go they gave me some money to go out and film what you think is a Nick Egan represents Nick Egan so so I went out to the desert and I didn't actually know again it's similar to the largest thing I didn't kind of know what I wanted to film I just know I wanted to be out in, death, in around Death Valley and I brought in this kind of poetry and but then we went to this bar and we bumped into this guy and he was, his name was Leroy Work and he was about 85 years old and he was in this bar with his, this sleazy bar with his wife. And he started talking to us and he started telling us about how when he worked for the government, he, um, they were working and on the job somewhere and they said that they, the guys had to stop what they were doing and get on, the bu- get, get on the bus or go in this place and they trying to hurry up but they didn't get everyone out, away from this workspace they were at. And he said what it was, it was a, about 200 feet above the ground, about the size of a Winnebago, was a craft, like some sort of like, like spacecraft that was not alien. It was, it was piloted by American pilots, but it was a captured or crashed UFO. And they were doing reverse engineering on it. And he said... And he said it went by them really slow, and they looked at it, and that's why they didn't want they wanted nobody to see it. But they saw this thing, and he told that story. And again, I looked at the crew, and the crew's jaws would drop because he told it in such a great way. He obviously wasn't making up; it was this old guy. And I made, and so I turned it into this little thing about spotting a UFO. So, so you got this thing, uh, you know. I started, then it began to move, and it went up, and it went down, and. And I put that together, and that was all done in Death Valley. Because Death Valley, if you were ever going to go to a, an alien space, I don't know if you know anything about Death Valley, it is like another planet. It is unbelievable. It is, it is the lowest point in America, North America. It's 300 feet below sea level. And so you've got this white, and it's in the Alanis video, this white, looks like snow, but it's salt. And it's you can't go on it. We had to get permission to go on it because it's this sort. It's like, and then the the rocks around are all like pastel colours. They're like pink and like baby blue and green and 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 it's it's the most epic place I've ever been to. It is it is like it's like another planet. So and it's so photogenic as well. It's incredibly photogenic because the light in there and it's it's so I've shot three things there. So that's that's an easy one. Good question, because nobody ever asked me that. You don't even question. I say, guys, you've done your research. Oh, well, we, we, we like <laughs> we like to make sure we we come prepared and everything. You do. So so is that enough for you girls? Because I do have to get off and do stuff. Absolutely. I was just about to say thank you so much, Nick, for coming on and joining us today. We really appreciate it we we can't wait for what you've got coming up with the book and mm-hmm. um your art shows and everything i'll keep in touch with you girls absolutely i can't, I can't stand the sound of my own voice um i, I listen to it for five minutes and i go oh, I cringe and i can't i can't listen anymore but but anyway you've been great i'm really ever appreciated your listening but also your questions have been really really good and interesting questions oh so thank I've, you, thank you. So let's, so let's keep in touch. Thanks again for today. And good luck with it, putting this one together. You've got more than enough, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah, Thank yeah. you so much again. And it's been lovely talking to you. And good luck. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a great day. And you take care. Bye. Bye.